This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. In this second episode of our special series on the National Trans Health Summit, we bring you into the room for a presentation by Dr. Dan Karasik. Karasik is the lead author of the mental health chapter of WPATH Standards of Care 8, speaking here about working with patients with autism. We're joined by two Bay Area clinicians who attended the conference to provide commentary on the presentation. Please note that the first minute or so of the audio recording is hard to hear, but it does improve, so stay with us. And with that, let's dive in. So, um, uh, autism spectrum disorder, um, and, um, neurodivergence. So, autism spectrum disorder is a developmental disorder in childhood, um, that, um, overlaps with gender dysphoria more than expected um, for reasons we don't know. Um, there, but anyone who is doing um, gender work sees a, a lot of people um, with spectrum disorder. In addition, there's um, uh, a whole group of folks who function very well, but have read about um, autism spectrum disorder and seen aspects um, that resonate with them. Um, and those are folks that we might not say have a disorder because they're functioning so well, um, but uh, uh, rather um, uh, try to engage them with non-pathological uh, uh, frameworks uh, um, but there are some folks who are, you know, impaired. Um, so, uh, just a, a first principle of working with folks with uh, spectrum disorder is um, recognizing that it's not just one thing, and um, that there are um, uh, people for whom the uh, disorder could. Um, really impede uh, transition, and there are other people from whom it really um, doesn't at all. So it's really a, um, a individual assessment of, of the degree in which they're impacted and how that um, the ways that they're impacted might uh, affect transition. So, um, this is the DSM-5 um, uh, autism spectrum disorder. You can see there's two groups of symptoms, um, persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction, and then restricted rep repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. And then they give examples of each of them, and then there's a uh, severity uh, rating. So, um, let's talk about some of the ways that ASD can um, interact uh, with uh, 
transition. So, first of all, there are um, there can be uh, issues uh, with communication with care providers. Um, if you have taken care of some youth with really significant um, autism spectrum disorder, there are some for whom just you know engaging and uh, getting them to uh, be able to um, verbalize um, uh, their um, uh, feelings related to uh, uh, gender identity, gender dysphoria, and transition uh, sometimes can be challenging. Um, although even um, some youth who are really, you know, quite impaired verbally will make their feelings known in, in other ways. And uh, uh, so it's not really a block so much as um, sometimes um, creating a, a little bit more of a challenge in terms of um, uh, exploring what you want to explore with the uh, with a young person. But it's really important there, right at the beginning of this session, he's saying, even with some patients who are very impaired verbally, that's not necessarily a block. And there are basically not necessarily a block to transition. And there are other other ways to explore with them. Uh, he doesn't say, yeah. We'll, we'll get to some, some suggestions later yeah. on on how to uh, get around that. And he started off saying that there's a high, there's a, there's a huge overlap between gender dysphoria and autism for reasons that are not well understood. So he doesn't doesn't sound like he's attempting to explain that correlation. He just states there is that correlation and therefore um, how do we assess those that have autism and, and make sure that autism isn't a barrier to receiving gender affirming care, just in case anyone sort of exactly. missed, missed that initial initial bit of the talk. Yes. And, you know, some or many mental health clinicians um, hypothesize that that correlation may be due to um, concrete thinking that can happen with autism, right? And black and white, rigid thinking, um, and also uh, sensory sensitivities. Um, so all, all of those things have been thrown out there as um, you know, ideas about that might explain the correlation. There's also a theory that there's a connection between autism and high testosterone in both males and females. And that um, I think Jordan Peterson mentioned this in one of his talks that, um, that because like if a female is in utero exposed to high testosterone, if that is the cause of, of the autism, that it might also create um, some masculinization. And there've been studies on facial masculinization in females with autism. So there it's, a, I think it's a contested theory, but it is one of the existing theories of what the correlation is, of, is related to. Those of us in the kind of, uh, 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 say, gender critical camp of all this, there's a lot of of, of theories of, as to, to to why those things correlate, and I think there's a lot of truth to all of them. But in this, in in the in the context of Dan Karasik, <laughs> lead author of the mental health chapter of Sock Eight, he has no curiosity about what that overlap is, like where those. It's just like we don't know. Okay, moving on. How do we? How do we? Like zero curiosity. <clears throat> yeah. Can we move on. Yeah. 
um, whether that's in uh, school, uh, with peers, with family, um, and that, of course, without inspection, sort of can be an issue in other realms other than gender, but uh, uh, sometimes um, impacts, um, um, for example, getting family on board with, uh, with transitioning. Um, the impairment in uh, social communication interaction can um, make it more difficult to find uh, social support, although I certainly have folks with, with ASD who actually have pretty robust support networks. Very often, things like winning uh, gaming communities or other online um, uh, uh, communities. And so it... Should, one shouldn't assume that um, the people don't find other ways to uh, get social support, but it's certainly something to uh, explore. Um, more challenging, actually, are. I, I just want to make sure that people understand that he just said that you might think that they don't have a robust social support network, which is necessary for a success, successful transition, but not to fear most of these people have very online lives. That they have robust social networks in their online gaming community, for example. Just making sure everybody got that's what he said. Yeah, that would be a red flag in any other area of <laughs> mental health. You know, if a youth that their only social interaction is online, I would consider that an impairment of some kind. Well, in fact, the US Surgeon General just released a statement, you know, calling attention to the problem of social media and youth and how it affects their mental health. Um and to compare that to the support of, you know, families that you live with that have known you your whole life to say that you might get a sufficient support from people on the other end of a computer does seem ridiculous. And insufficient support from family. I mean, he said it can be hard to get parents on board, you know, parents of autistic kids because they might think um, that, you know, the the autism may complicate um the situation to say the least so um again i mean we i think we we hear this over and over again there's this um very strong idea about how to get um you know parents on board right how to how to convince them that <clears throat> leads me to a really important uh piece I, I recently learned about how this happens is um I was recently on on Benjamin Boyce's podcast with Eliza Mondegreen and we were talking about our various um experiences at this conference. She was at uh, um, EPATH in Ireland um, around the same time. And uh, uh, when I was talking about this, about the Dan Karasik and uh, Benjamin Boyce asked me, basically, how were parents, you know, why are these kids, if the parent isn't on board with the transition, who, why, how are these, you know, how are these affirmative mental health providers getting their hands on these nonverbal autistic kids? And um, I actually heard from uh, Jamie Reed. She answered that question, which was that parents were bringing their children. They would see their their kids online, uh, um, like uh, their Internet history and realize that they're in this gender issue thing going on they, they find out about it online and they bring them to the gender specialist thinking that that's where they're going to get answers and that's where the kid's going to get help but really all they get is medicalization and 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 the parent gets coerced coerced into medicalization um so that was an incredibly 
Yeah. Yeah. That I, I had no idea that that's, I was like, yeah, that's a great question. How, how, how was this, how is this situation even arising? <clears throat> it's because the parents clue in on some level that something gender is going on based on the internet history of their child, take them to the clinic, thinking that's the actual expert, an actually informed person is going to assess the situation, help the kid figure out what's going on. But no, it's just boom, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that same phenomenon happens for a lot of non-autistic kids also yeah. you know yeah. parents just assume that the gender specialists are going to be the ones who will help them sort out what's happening not having any idea that you know they already have a very specific perspective which will drive what happens from there yep parents who um, attribute gender diversity or dysphoria um to um, the intense focus on circumscribed interests um, of ASD, where, for example, like a parent saying, well, you know, when my child was nine, they were obsessed with vacuum cleaners. And then when they were 12, they only wanted to dress like Justin Bieber. And so I have to explain to them those are two actually very different things. That they only want to dress like Justin Bieber because that's an androgynous way to dress. It's not, that wasn't a uh, necessarily an obsession of much as a spectrum disorder. And I think actually when, when you or I. Sorry, the Justin Bieber comment made me laugh, but it, I just wanted to add to that. Do you know how many lesbians look like Justin Bieber? <laughs> it could just be that the kid's gay. <laughs> Good point. It was a meme. It was a meme. It was like what, lesbian or Justin Bieber. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I just had to throw that in. I when Sean or I were talking about folks, often we're talking about someone who's patients who share with you. Um so um but that's actually something that has been very common. Um, some some of the youth with autism spectrum, their parents, or with actually any, um, uh, like co-occurring mental health condition or even physical disability, sometimes uh, um, the child is more dependent on even more dependent on parents than than an adolescent would be. Um, whether because they have a smaller social network or because they really, for whatever the condition is, they're really relying on the parent for um, uh, interaction uh, with the outside world sometimes. Um, but I, um, it's really kind of astonishing how many times over the years parents have attributed to their trans kid where it's very clear the kid is Trans, they just also happen to have autism spectrum disorder in a minor way where the parents have kind of convinced themselves that um, the um, issues around gender dysphoria and gender expression um, are just uh, like um, obsessive, repetitive, you know, um, interest related to ASD. Um, so, and then uh, in, in another way, um, 
so folks uh, with ASD sometimes have environmental or sen sensory sensitivity, um, and that can make the transition people have to see doctors and um, be in um, uh, sometimes uh, uncomfortable uh, circumstances, whether it's bright lights or just unfamiliar surroundings um, or noisy places that um, we're having ASD sometimes um, uh, impact that. And um, I had recently an adult with ASD who had chest surgery who really was inordinately affected by just the sensation of healing. They had um, uh, great relief from gender dysphoria having chest surgery, but just um, all of the different sensory changes in their chest became um, very, very distracting for them and, and really uh, disabling um, where they couldn't work for a while because they were just so focused on uh, so, so sometimes people will and react, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, differently in ways that that um, could um, impact um, uh, transition. That being said, uh, my patients with autism spectrum disorder um, who need gender affirming medical and surgical care benefit from it just as much as folks who don't have ASD. So it's really more a matter of helping them through the process um, as opposed to, well, if we get back to some of those state laws where they say you have to have, you know, cured the patient's ASD and ADHD before, you know, before they end up with Yeah, I have a question. So when you're working with an individual um, that is on the spectrum with little to almost none um communicative abilities which does happen i mean even if it's you know often from high anxiety you know connected to yeah. what would be your suggestion on the assessments um that uh, we have to complete and when you receive pushback um you know from individuals maybe higher than you when they're over when they're looking at the assessments and saying oh there's not enough information here or wait a minute parent answered you know a majority of those questions because i have experienced that and i go to bat and then i you know accidentally get on my high horse a lot of times but what would be and what's your suggestion yeah um i, I think it'd be challenging um i have a patient right now that um an adolescent with quite severe um, uh, autism who I um, always see with her uh, mother, um, even though uh, she's 17 now, transgirl. Uh, um, and um, I didn't do the initial evaluation for this person to start um, uh, hormones, but I would have imagined it have been difficult and I've done some evaluation of this person where um, uh, and given them some advice to take back to their um, the team that the child gender team uh, at a, another nearby university that um, uh, that's working with that particular um, uh, patient. I do think that's 
it's challenging and it's building rapport and learning how the person communicates. Sometimes it's accepting some degree of communication with the parent because the parent, you know, recognizing the limitations of that, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's necessary because the, the parent, you know, is with the, the youth all the time and, and uh, you know, can have a better sense of how, uh, you know, how they're doing this. The particular connotation I'm thinking of, um, you know, despite their quite severe autism, is very clearly trans and clearly, you know, benefiting from um, being on, um, uh, you know, estradiol and, um, uh, and if anything is, you know, um, just impatient for more uh, feminization and, um, and, you know, wishes they had, had gotten treated earlier for, you know, for that reason. Um, yes. So, you know, there's, there's this, he's talking about how you sometimes very reluctantly have to deal with the parents of, you know, severely autistic kids because of the limitations of their communication abilities. But it's so, it's this, you, you, unfortunately, we sometimes have to include the parents, um, is, is the attitude. He says it very much like, you know, you know, it's very, you know, very inconvenient that we often have to deal with parents, you know, when treating, you know, these these adolescent or minor uh, patients. Uh, but it's even more so the case with these autistic kids, unfortunately, is like how he was saying that. Um, but I just I can't get beyond that thing where he, he does this it, 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 multiple times, but where he's basically like, if anything, she wishes, you know, she got more feminization sooner or faster. It's like. Did she tell you that he just he just like says what he wants to believe i don't know it's just <clears throat> well and i mean there's this he says she's she was clearly trans again i mean this goes back to the fundamental question of of what does that mean for a child and adolescent to for, for anyone to be trans um right as opposed to having gender dysphoria and identifying as trans, right? Um, yeah. We'll have to have an autism specialist on at some point because I have so many questions, um, you know, that have just accumulated in my head as we've been doing this podcast for a while. But one of the questions I have is, uh, I know with autistic girls do tend to be more gender nonconforming. I mean, Temple Grandin being a classic example. Um, do you happen? Do any of you happen to know if gender nonconformity is more common in autism with in boys as well? Well, it's not that gender nonconformity is more common in boys. It, it certainly is with with, with girls. Well, it's <clears throat> there's a, there's a facet of autism where just learning social behavior is difficult. So um, even well before the whole tr trans explosion, it, it was well noted that. Um, autistic patients or autistic people have trouble with gender, with like performing their sex essentially, which is like something that kind of comes naturally to most people. But with like getting the, the concept, the concepts, the the concepts of kind of like 
Yeah, so I guess the answer is yes, that the males are gender non-conforming as well. But it's not that so – I think, I think autistic girls often come off as just naturally like tomboys essentially, like very kind of masculine uh, more than other girls. But I think the, the boys, it, it's not so much that they're um, – like they're certainly not feminine in their behavior. That's not. It's not like going in 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 the in the female direction. It's just. I think it's just um, awkwardness uh, uh, that I think some people can you know choose to interpret as um, trans. Um, I don't know if you 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 two probably could answer that better than I can, or I could be uh, well off the mark here. Well, I have I have many autistic patients as a pediatrician, and I would say. What I don't know what makes sense to me is that it's not so much that they're gender non-conforming per se, is that, you know, the, the whole thing about autism is this difficulty with social communication. And so it seems to me like this gives you a recipe, right, for how to behave. Like, oh, let me tell you exactly how to do it. And if you're not comfortable with the way of behaving that maybe is traditionally associated with your sex, then here's an alternative for you. And it's very clear cut. And if you follow this, then this is a way toward acceptance. So I don't know that it has to do with gender per se, so much as trying to figure out how to be at home in the world when you don't, when that doesn't come naturally to you. I don't know. That's There's also aspects of autism that um, this is another thing Jordan Peterson mentioned in one of his videos that that there are aspects of autism that do tend to be more male typical, like for example, um, being more preoccupied with with objects and things rather than people. So it, I think that might be more, even though that would be true for both males and females, it would probably wouldn't be as noticed as noticeable in males if we expect them to be more object oriented and working with their hands and less social. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's very true. And socialization of females to um, kind of take care of others, right? Um, be kind. Um, think about the other person's feelings. Um, you know, those are all things that require capacities that are limited in people with autism. Um, Even with the classic, the classic childhood onset gender dysphoria, so you know, not not speaking at all about the ROG, ROG, ROGD phenomenon, but the, the classic type of gender dysphoria where it starts at age three onward. Um, there is, I can't remember off the top of my head, which studies this came out of, but in one of the, I can't remember if it was Zucker or one of Blanchard's, but it was a persistent study looking at who is more likely to persist or desist, um, from the childhood gender dysphoria and autism and low social economic status were two of the, of course, there's no solid predictor of persistence, but said those with autism were more likely to persist probably because of that very rigid concrete thinking that once they kind of settled on this that it would they will because of the lack of psychological flexibility they were probably probably less likely to work them work their way out of the gender dysphoria that makes sense should we carry on oh, i was just thinking to add to that i think it's really important when we submit an assessment 
to basically say the problem is with the assessment requirements mm -hmm. and that they're very neurotypically designed. And that <clears throat> just preface it by due to that, I use other measures and uh, in information to find out about this particular person and essentially educate people around there's different ways of knowing. And if we use the standard template, we're not going to find out. We may have to depend on parents. We may have to depend on drawings. Uh, but we can't just say, well, until you can be verbal and answer the questions as we have in this assessment packet, we can't clear you. That's really discriminatory. Hear that information? You know, consider it an education opportunity, maybe for those above us that don't understand ASD as well as, you know, some clinicians do. Mm -hmm. Um, because even though there was obvious communication in, in some of the assessments that I did, I still got pushed back because there was not enough um, enough coming from the person themselves and instead from the parent. So it's, it's very, very frustrating because you're correct. It's very, very neurotypical and it drives me crazy. And I'm hoping that in the future we can change that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned um, uh, drawing because this particular patient is able to draw her feelings better than to, to speak them. And yeah. so sometimes that can be, and likes, enjoys drawing much more than enjoys speaking typically. Yeah. And so, um, so I think that's a good point to bring up. That can I tell a really sad story? Sure. <laughs> this is a really sad story. This was a child. But you have to, you have to leave it with like a little So this was a child who came to our clinic at UCSF at age eight, had no language, had been diagnosed as very autistic at age two. Uh, and the only time this child spoke in the initial session was when the parents and the grandmother who came together would say, and and when she was little, and it's not she, he, that was the only sentence. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, the child was in precocious puberty. So we did puberty blockers, child did a social transition. And the next time they came to our clinic, well, not the next time, for one of the subsequent visits, walked in, shook my hand, actually touched me, and said, hello, Dr. Ehrenstadt. So this was after a social wow. transition. That's the good part. Okay, that <laughs> Are you ready? So then this child is approaching puberty now. It has been on blockers for precocious puberty, but the family decides they want to get an independent evaluation. They live in Central California. They found a psychologist who basically said this child cannot be, it's impossible that this child is transgender because on the anatomically correct dolls, they could not distinguish that there was a boy doll and a girl doll based on genitalia. So how could they know their gender? And they detransitioned this child. Thanks for that, Sam. No, no, so these are the things why we have to keep doing this work. Uh, and educate as many people. And we kept calling the family and saying we, they didn't respond. Let's call that psychology. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, moving
Yeah, I was just saying, I'm, I'm, kind of spe- I'm kind of speechless. So basically what she's saying is that a child that doesn't understand the difference between males and females would know which they were. Is that kind of the gist of what she's saying? Yes, that, that's, you know, it's just preposterous to think that a child who doesn't know, you know, can't discern anatomical differences between males and females wouldn't be trans and wouldn't need to be medicalized. Like she just finds that absurd for me it seems more like a consent issue that if what is their capacity to consent to these treatments if they don't understand the difference between males or females that's right and also i mean this it maybe it's not that clear in this moment but it it's something that was um <clears throat> conveyed repeatedly is like this psychologist is who, who the independent um, psychologist that they receive the assessment from is from the Central Valley. Um, and there's just this understanding that those people are conservative, right? And and that's why um, they get in the way of, um, you know, what, what these trans kids need. Yeah, as a... Um... <clears throat> A foreigner, so to speak, the the um, contempt for everybody outside of San Francisco and L.A. seems pretty uh, palpable. There was the general theme. And for anything conservative, I mean, I, I don't I can't think of other areas of medical or psychological practice where there's two completely different streams of practice based on whether you're liberal or conservative. Like, how is that? How is it relevant? I mean, if this is solid clinical practice and evidence-based, a person's political affiliation shouldn't matter. But it's something I've seen over and over and over again with, you know, these queer-based trans circles, because the queer, the, the queer ideology is so liberal that they don't make room for anyone that isn't far left. Mm-hmm. I also found it curious that um when they tried to follow up with this family they didn't hear back and it seems like uh dr aronsoff was making certain assumptions about what that meant but i don't know why you would make that assumption i mean maybe that worked out well for the kid to keep their original sex and they didn't feel the need to talk anymore with the ucsf gender clinic so um I, it would actually be quite interesting to know what happened to that. Yeah. All right. I mean, she prefaced it by saying it's a sad story. Right. Right. The one that got away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if had she followed up with, you know, they detransition the child and then the child's mental health decompensated. I mean, that might have that might have completed that loop to why it was a sad story. But yeah, right. Like without knowing what is the outcome of that child, maybe they're perfectly happy. It, right. it's, it's not a sad it's not a sad story unless they were suffering as a result of that decision. Right. And I think <clears throat> detransitioned is too strong of a word there. Um, I mean, she was on puberty blockers because of precocious puberty. Um, And then, you know, the social transition, we don't know what that included. But um, I mean, there's different ways people mean different things by desisting, Mm -hmm. detransitioning. 
but it's I I think she puts it in terms that are too strong right that they detransitioned the kid Um, yeah whereas really they just chose not to proceed with more medical interventions right yeah yeah that's a good point medical interventions specifically you know that are related to gender identity Mm -hmm. she was only on puberty blockers for precocious puberty which is an entirely different thing yep all right a mutual client patient who years later was able to transition on her own. So, but there's your, we don't know, maybe, maybe there was Okay, so let's talk about depression, um, anxiety, and anxiety with transition. So these are very common things, uh, depression and anxiety among cisgender as well as trans people, among adolescents, um, and um, they, but trans people have this additional life challenge um, of, uh, related to uh, transition and um, and depression and anxiety often can get in the way. Um, uh, depression impairs not only energy motivation, but also optimism, the idea that things can change for the better. And um, anxiety can really be obstructing in all kinds of ways uh, for people seeking help or seeking therapy. Um, so just to add quickly, so depression and anxiety can get in the way and obviously he means of medical intervention. He doesn't mean get in the way of um, working through what the underlying causes are of identifying as trans or of gender dysphoria, um, right? It's it's only, again, the the model is that transitioning is, is the way to go. Medical intervention is what you're supposed to do um, or what they need. And these these other things, depression, anxiety, um, can get in the way of that. <clears throat> it, it's a very good point that that the, the whole the whole construct seems to that it's not about resolving the patient's mental turmoil or anything about resolving something internally for for the patient. It's just everything. It, the the solution is always pharmaceuticals and surgery. And. Um... In addition, um, uh, people are anxious and depressed. Um, There's often a social anxiety component. Um, uh, There are um, uh, greater barriers um, for um, obtaining the necessary social support um, that you need in particular, but that older folks as well who are anxious and depressed. you know, need the support of a, of a large community that can be hard to put together um, when you're feeling anxious or depressed. However, there are many studies that show um, benefit from transition, less depression, less anxiety, less suicidality and self-harm. And so it's um, important, uh, you know, for us to help support people, whether with psychotherapy or medications, um, to be able to get to that point if they are, if they need to transition, um, if they need medical um, 
uh, intervention to be able to get to that point and, and do that if they need to socially transition or if they're able. Um, this is just um, one of um, many papers. Um, this was from um, looking at um, anticipations from uh, Kaiser, um, both in Northern Southern California and uh, Georgia. Um, and their clinical takeaway from their data was that withholding or um, delaying uh, gender uh, confirming uh, treatment uh, until depression or anxiety has been treated may not be the optimal course given that the benefits of reduced uh, uh, stress after undergoing these intervention. So um, just supporting the idea that even though it can be more challenging for people who are depressed and anxious to transition, if they need to transition, it's ultimately beneficial for them. If, um, uh, and uh, they can use the kind of support to uh, get there. Um, so uh, suicidality and self-harm, um, these are uh, common things in, um, you know, as, as I have been talking about earlier, um, in um, trans youth and trans adults. Um, and, um, uh, but uh, transition has um, been shown to lessen suicidality and self-harm in large surveys and, and observational uh, studies um and so it can be a good thing that must in suicidality and so far in a lot of people um one little caveat uh, or can be a big caveat for some people is that transition parts of transition can be uh, can be stressful um so even if they are feeling better at the end um, there are um, things like um, relationship conflict and loss that can trigger suicidality um, during transition. Um, there's also can be an increase in minority stress when um, people um, during transition might um, maybe appear more obviously trans in a sense than they did before. And um, and thus be subject to uh, more discrimination or nasty comments that um, you know other kinds of uh, stressors. Um, so um, uh, so someone who does have um, suicidality and self harm um, history certainly uh, you know transition can be a good thing for them, but it's important to um, uh, you know, kind of monitor how they're doing um, with suicidality and platforming, EBT and um, other psychotherapies uh, in particular can be uh, helpful for suicidality, depression, and anxiety medications. So he, he's constantly <clears throat> separating any sort of psychic complexity or suffering, you know, anxiety, depression from from gender dysphoria and from trans identity as if they're you know discrete entities or something there's there's no sense of trying to understand how all of these things might be connected um so it's it's always um you know 
basically, <clears throat> how do we get the parents out of the way? How do we get the depression out of the way? How do we get the anxiety out of the way? How do we get the autism out of the way in order to provide these life-saving uh, measures? Um, and I don't know what specific studies he's referring to here, but we do know from the systematic evidence reviews that these studies are of low and very low quality. Um, so we, we can't rely on these studies that he's citing um, to, to basically advance his agenda. And he also, um, you know, there's, there's nothing, never anything going on in the individual's life that could contribute to the trans identity or the, or the, the request for transition or anything like that. There's nothing any, any it's never any about anything, you know, about the, intricacies of this person's life. Uh, but then if, you know, they transition and the self-harm suicidality uh, behaviors uh, come back, it's because of a, um, uh, you, know, a you know, something about in their life that's gone wrong, right? You know, a relationship breakdown or now they're undergoing minority stress due to their uh, transness, right? It's not, it's never about being trans. Like you're saying, it's like, it's, it's a discrete these discrete entities but yeah the how he frames that is basically there's this loophole right that where if if and if, if the mental health goes downhill after transition it's because of the intricacies of this person's life completely removed from transition that seems related to what i've heard from a lot of detransitioners that um the pathway to the original transition was you know minimal assessment but the moment they want to reverse their transition because they feel they've made a mistake now suddenly they have to go through a whole bunch of assessments and jump through a bunch of hoops it's sort of an assumption that well no you are trans so if you now you regret it there must be something else going on that that you didn't actually make a mistake that it must be minority stress or right so it's it's just that that um contradiction one of the reasons why I'm so opposed to the T being in the LGB because how, how this is all facilitated is because trans is just like being gay. So you can be gay and, you know, like that doesn't change, you know, if you're, you know, how depressed you are or how anxious you are or how, you know, autistic you are, you know, it's like that's your sexual orientation is going to be static through all the roller coasters of life. Right. And so that's how they manage to, tackle to, to pretend that trans is also discreet from all of these um yeah from from all the ups and downs of life is because of just that that gay association that's completely completely false but well it's it's the include it's the rogd that complicates that i mean i think it made more sense for the t to be part of lgbt when it was a bunch of lesbians and gay men that were transitioning and then with autogynophilia i mean you could argue that that is a sexuality but it's because they've they've completely divorced gender dysphoria. I mean, talking about the two classic types, divorcing gender dysphoria from sexual orientation, but then still force teaming it with LGBT, which is, or LGB, which is a sexual orientation. But ROGD, I don't think, has anything to do with sexuality. So, no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't, and they would yeah. never acknowledge. They would never acknowledge why the T was included in the first place, though. That's the kicker, right? So, I, you know, you and I firmly believe that there is a, definitely a sexuality component to 
to, to gender dysphoria of, of all original types in, in my estimation. But the, but the actual people who are advocating this transition for all would and and the the, the T inclusion still would absolutely never um, you know accept that. Uh, that's where it's so so ridiculous that they continue to to, to or why it's all completely you know helpful propaganda essentially uh, helpful and inconvenient they 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 dodge it all very well you you said that rog rogd has nothing to do with sexuality most of the time i don't think it does not in this not in the same way i mean i think there are probably some cases of just straight up um internalized homophobia that that happens but i think rogd has become so much more of, of a social phenomenon than about than rooted in sexuality. You if know. anything, I think a lot of the ROGD girls are actually fleeing sexuality. It's it's the it's a it's an it's it, it's like stunting development essentially. It's it's avoiding um, yeah the sexualization of females in a, in a lot of ways. I think and the drive to fit into a social group and. I think there's a lot of different motivations behind ROGD, but I don't think it's an organic, organically occurring phenomenon out of sexual orientation in the same way that both autogynophilia and some homosexual transsexuals is. I see. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I mean, we don't have hard data on this, but I do think, um, <clears throat> at least for, for some ROGD kids, there is... Um, you know, that sexuality is a component. Um, but I think you're making a distinction between, you, you said something more organic and something social. So it can be internalized homophobia or, um, or again, this equating of gender nonconformance um, with trans, right? So I, again, I, we don't, we don't have data, but um, <clears throat> my sense from, from my work and, you know, from what I've heard and read is that there are quite a number of, especially girls, you know, females um, who are lesbians um, and gender nonconforming who are identifying as trans. When you, so, so, so when you say that there is a sexuality component to ROGD, I think that's the first of, but what, what, is that what you mean? Just to be by the lesbians who are swept up in it? Yeah, I mean, I okay. think, I think gay boys too. But I, I, I think, um, I think it might that might be more the case with lesbians. It's 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 one stream. There are a number of streams, and I, I think the larger one is you know kids who are you know lost and find themselves on the fringes and don't know where they belong and they want um you know a, a group or um or they're just gender non-conforming <clears throat> or they want to opt out of female sexuality um but um i do think that uh, at least some of them i mean again i, I don't want to see say you know most or anything we don't know um but i i, I would say that that's definitely a component one thing that I found out when I've been like so deep dived into this is, is so I don't know what what the situation is like in in the you know in the in the uh, in the therapy room, but online it's very clear that you you tell 
the practitioner you're seeing that the girls you tell them that you're a lesbian that's that's one of the coaching so that that's explained online is because then you're more likely to be believed to be truly trans um but all, but in the actual like like in the in the forums and whatnot and i i spend a lot of time like just kind of learning the culture and whatnot and the on a granular level the it, it seems far and away that they're like trying to be queer in some way and and you know it it, it validated if that like i don't know it's it's so much about the the philosophy and the culture and being part of the some sort of movement and whatnot it seems like like actual bodies and actual sexual orientation are just so completely so completely divorced from what the the younger people getting into this are, are the females definitely the, i'm, I'm talking when i'm talking about rogd i'm going to be always talking about females i'm not sure if it's really a component for the boys um but it, it's so much about it's the culture and the just the, the the queer rainbow movement. It's like, the, 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 it seems like the sexuality is just some is a card you play in order to pass cis normative tests. Is like how it's how it's understood inside the community. Mm -hmm. That's that's why I just don't I don't I, I mean yeah sure I think uh, certainly you know, all the, all the whole disappearing butch thing is absolutely a real phenomenon. But I think for the, when we're talking about the teenagers, I've really, I, I don't even, I'm, I'm curious how many of them actually know what their actual sexual orientation is. I, I just, it's so completely divorced from what I. Yeah. Um, well, what I've yeah. seen with so, some ROGD girls is that they identify as gay men, right? Gay mm -hmm. boys. So, which I find completely perplexing and i'd love to hear what you guys think about that well because yeah i mean more social currency to to being gay than there is to being like a straight girl right right that's yeah because because if you're a straight girl and that's a, a lot of people will think that these girls are like fetishizing gay men um and that's what they're in again i don't think it has it, i think people are trying to make this way more about sexuality than it actually is for these kids i think it's mostly um a case of well they are they're, they're just normal straight girls but they need to be trans and they need to be queer and therefore since they like boys and they're trans so then they're a gay boy you know like it, it just doesn't it's very it, it's just normal normal yeah i think they're far and away just regular you know straight girls who have to be queer in some sense and it's so much more about the um yeah the cultural designation and the, and the um just yeah yeah the I, we say it too much, but the cult, you know, it's like they have to be, they have to be queer in some way. And a lot of them claim to be lesbian because that's how they get in or that's how the, the, yeah, the, the, how they pass the cis normative test as they understand it, you know, the, the, the gatekeepers, and then they can be, you know, their true gay self, their true gay boy self after like, it's, yeah, it's, it's so, I, I, I don't, the Rajdi and sexuality thing is, I just, I just don't think the component is there as much as, as people think it is, is my my assessment from being in the, yeah. Yeah, and the number of gay and lesbians that are getting, you know, swept up into the on the trans train, I think 
that's largely a misinformation campaign. I mean, it used to be kind of well understood that gay and lesbians were more gender nonconforming, and especially as children. I mean, the number of gay boys that are very highly effeminate as boys, and they they end up becoming more masculine as once they kind of realize their sexuality and and become gay men. But if that's if the messaging if the messaging was that gender nonconformity gender nonconformity conformity exists on a spectrum with the far end being what we might call gender dysphoria um it, historically it was only those adults that that gender dysphoria persisted and was very severe that that were transitioning but if you're if you're telling people that gender nonconformity or any degree of of gender dysphoria automatically means you're trans that they're they're now sort of labeled slapping these kids with a trans label with well giving them an opportunity to resolve that and become happy healthy gay and lesbians because that's not the message families and the and the kids are receiving so i think so i think there's a lot of sort of sub threshold if you kind of call gender dysphoria you know a clinical threshold i think there's a lot of sub threshold kids being swept up on the trans train who probably would have just assisted and become gay or lesbian but so I think it's largely misinformation that's that's driving that, that they get slapped with a trans label prematurely. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it's not um, as big of a factor. Or maybe there aren't as many you know, gay and lesbian, um, let's say, adolescents who are identifying as trans. But I... I don't want to sweep it out on the under the rug entirely because it it's definitely something I see um in my work. And again, mostly with with females, although I, I happen to, you know, more of my my practice involves females, but um and and that's not to say they even have any sort of um real connection to their sexual to to their sexuality. They're not um, you know kind of my sense is that they they're dissociated or split off from their sexual desire right um I don't know if um if these girls kind of experiment with their bodies in any way or you know even if we're talking about masturbation or something um but they do talk about having crushes on girls um and so I, I think, I mean, oftentimes when I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is, she's a lesbian, even if, you know, we don't, we don't know that, like, she hasn't had any sexual encounters yet, but she's talking about being attracted to girls or having crushes on them. Um, so to my mind, that kind of suggests a more, you know, that they might be bisexual or lesbian um so i think yeah i think i think it's there i don't know i think it's much more complicated than that and the you know again like what you're saying that there's um there's this you know being being cis and straight is the worst thing in the world these days so um there's a lot of um you know, trying to move away from that and be something different. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cases. And I think 
I, I get in trouble for this, but I, I do think female sexuality is a lot more fluid and, and socially malleable than than male sexuality. So and I, th I think, too, a lot of these girls can get themselves so entrenched in the ideology and so entrenched. Or not, it, it's just it's, it's the water that they swim in is that they that they, to be just a normal straight girl is just uh, they just cannot do that. They just cannot be that. And so, you know, they won't let themselves dwell on the boys that they're, you know, Kind of more naturally um, developing crushes. I mean, I, I know obviously they're absolutely one hundred percent genuinely lesbian teenagers, but I mean, like, for, it's rare. Actual actual female homosexuality is very rare, but Rajdi is incredibly common, and I think in, it, because it's it's a it's a it's a culture um, that's completely devoid of of they're completely uh, unrelated. I'm, I'm repeating myself, but like, um, I just it's like they 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 they'll only focus on the girls that they think are probably cool or they admire or they are, you know, and then it, it's funneled into a crush when, and again, it could genuinely be a crush, but it could also just be like, like who they need to be focusing their budding attentions on. I don't know. It's, it's all so, it's just so constructed and so forced and so about, yeah. Well, and cr yeah, crushes are sometimes more about, we want to be like that person rather than, right. rather than we want that person. Yeah. Yeah. The so next I wanted to talk um, about um, the mental health chapter in um, SSB 8. Um, so that chapter is specifically um, related to uh, people with. Um, uh, significant um, mental illness or substance use who are also transitioning. So it does, it does, it has some broader implications than that. Um, but in that regard, um, we had um, already decided, I think probably many of us kind of felt um, shortly after Sanskrit 7 came out that. Um, the relatively well-controlled and well-controlled descriptors were not really the best ones. This came up in Standards Care 7, but um, the European gender clinics use this idea of well-controlled and, and uh, relatively well-controlled um, just get a referral to the clinic from kind of general care, and um, we really couldn't have, get consensus with SOS 7 to um, change with that, but um, uh, we were um, uh, able to do that for um, SOC 8, including some of the same you know, leaders of European gender centers. Um, and, um, and in that interim between 2011 and 2022, we had the considerable experience in American healthcare of providing transition care to people with um, uh, often severe mental illness who needed transition care um, as um, Medicaid uh, you know, opened up the um, uh, uh, population of uh, folks um, who were disabled by mental illness to be able to get transi uh, transition care. And so we were coming from a stronger voice, I think, in the US at that point. So, um, uh, there have been um, many discussions about things that um, 
public wealth control criteria and um, other issues related to um, transgender care uh, for people with uh, mental illness and substance use, um, including their care in um, uh, in inpatient and residential facilities. Um, and these were discussed at various WPAT and conferences. Um, and I just briefly wanted to just go through um, a set of examples in, in my experience showing um, the need for better guidelines than what we had in Advanced Care 7. So um, uh, the first one was a state correctional agency that was in, um, the fair expert um, was um, denying surgery to incarcerated people uh, because we pretty much thought that all incarcerated people had personality disorders that weren't well controlled and so they were in jail. And so they were just wholesale, even though the health system, you know, the, I mean, the state had agreed, you know, in court to uh, provide this care. And in fact, they were denying it for this reason. Um, uh, another example, um, was uh, a state where uh, a young trans man, psychiatrist and therapist were reluctant to provide a letter for chest surgery um, due to this history of suicidal thoughts and depression. Um, and this was in a 18-year-old um, um, and uh, where it was very clear that the justice chorea was a strong contributor um, to their suicidal thoughts and depression and the the surgeon actually reached out to me and um, and uh, the patient um, uh, came to see me for, uh, for an assessment. Um, Burton did have chest surgery and, um, and did very well and a substantial relief of depression suicidality. Another one is um, insurance and healthcare system denying coverage for surgery because of psychiatric hospitalization events for the last however many months. Um, that would be their policy without really any data to support that, except for saying, well, you know, that shows that their minimum is not well controlled. Um, an extreme form um, of denial of care was uh, state um, psychiatric hospital from another state other than this one. Um, where um, every trans person who was submitted to this uh, state hospital um, would um, get cut off from their hormones and not get them until they were released. And the reason that was given um, by the doctor there was that since they're in this psychiatric hospital that they can't consent for hormones, but they don't have capacity for consent. Um, and um, and that their mental illness was not well controlled. Also, well, obviously, they're in a psychiatric hospital. Their mental illness is not well controlled. So, um, you know, when in fact, um, you know, it was probably reflecting bias um, at that hospital about um, uh, treating French people with hormones. Um, so. Um, uh, so just a few more, um, oh, well, this was one uh, I saw in a state forensic hospital where they got, they allowed a patient with 
So simultaneous sort of transition after they made a lot of progress with that and um, identifies the trans man. Um, they were on testosterone for um, an extended period of time until a new psychiatrist took over the ward and forcibly detransitioned the patient after getting a consult from a uh, forensic department at another medical university, um, say in the Central Valley. Um, and so I kind of thought about it when you mentioned it, um, maybe avoid the Central Valley for, for those kinds of conversations. Um, so, um, and this is someone who eventually, um, thanks to um, legal advocacy and um, uh, work that I did over a decade, um, was eventually allowed to, well, they, they were allowed to transition in terms of hormones and social transition back just after I saw them in the 2000s, but then it was another decade before um, they were doing surgery um, at forensic facilities in the state of California. So sadly, this person waited a decade with uh, terrible dysphoria around his uh, chest. Eventually, after I saw my segment, not only did he need uh, chest surgery, but um, hysterectomy and hysterectomy and hysterectomy and the state actually ended up providing all those things and also allowed, finally discharged him and he's doing extraordinarily well. Uh, another one was uh, an adolescent trans girl that I saw with an early transition had lived, you know, as a girl for, you know, most of her life in terms of social transition and then puberty blockers and hormones. And, um, uh, but I saw this um, for um, depression and prescribed an SSRI, which caused suicidal ideation. And it can happen in, you know, this black box warning um, in adolescence. Um, and um, the parents took their um, daughter to uh, an emergency room. All of the Bay Area hospitals were full. Um, they eventually admitted her to the hospitals further out where she was treated very well by the day staff, but the weekend staff um, misgendered her, um, you know, kind of thus outing her to the other um, youth on the on the ward, and um, uh, and the child called her parents, who took her out uh, against my advice, um, and so just you know the treatment even in the greater Bay Area, maybe by by the mile as you get. Uh, out of uh, San Francisco and Berkeley, um, but uh, you know, it still needs a lot to be desired. Um, and then um, this patient surgery has been postponed because they had preoperative urine test positive for a nicotine metabolite. Um, and then um, uh, experts on, on anti-trans care. Um, uh, proposing that youth should accept their bodies as 
an alternative to transition, um, even when saying, oh, no, oh, no that's not conversion therapy. Um, so, just have a few minutes, but so we had, uh, um, uh, this is our mental health um, uh, chapter. We had folks from uh, Turkey, Belgium, and Sweden, um, as well as uh, a member of folks from, uh, from the US. Um, we had um, three of the seven um, folks on the committee were uh, trans identified. They're all uh, mental health providers. Um, and uh, through phone, Zoom, email, we came to consensus on 20 statements for our chapter. Um, the editors um, of SSC provided feedback. They cut our number of statements in half um, because some of them, they said, were just basically good practice. And I think they were just basically trying to keep um, SSCA from being war and peace. Um, but um, saying that statements had to be kind of recommendations, really action statements, recommendations that providers can make um, uh, that were beyond just being a good provider. Um, our 10 statements went to this Delphi process where you had to get 75% approval. Um, and um, if you didn't, um, uh, it would write in feedback and if you didn't get 75%, it could be re the same, it could be revised and submitted for another round of Delphi. This is a kind of large consensus building process. Um, all of our 10 statements were approved on the first pass. Um, and um, so uh, there was a release of the SCA draft, and there was an opportunity for people in each chapter to, to communicate with other chapters about uh, discrepancies and trying to make uh, all of the all of the chapters consistent through response to public comments, final editing, and final solutions. So um, just briefly, and you can. Read these, but um, uh, the first one was that um, uh, the conditions that interfere with capacity consent have to be addressed. So of course, people have to be able to um, consent to care. Um, importantly, rather than uh, uh, rather than conditions being uh, have to be well controlled, that um, there's an assessment of mental health symptoms that can interfere with the capacity to participate in paradigmatic care and making a care plan essentially to be able to um, uh, assist the patient with mental illness to be able to uh, uh, get through care. So um, uh, as long as they have capacity to consent, um, it's more of a process of working with a mentally ill change for its best outcome um, as opposed to mental illness being blocked. Um, and then that um, uh, mental health symptoms or he's 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 I'm not sure if he's basically just re, re he's he's going through what what it currently says in the mental health chapter of SOC 8 like what they ultimately decided on right which was like just to evaluate for the uh, the capacity to consent and and Aaron I know when 
like when you were doing the, the the assessments back before you left that clinic, you all you were allowed to do was to assess for the capacity to consent. There's nothing else to be to be assessed there. But even since SOC eight was written at this conference, we saw a shift. Diane Aronsaf just said it earlier in the session that you know basically ability to consent, you know, to verbally uh, <laughs> consent. Uh, is is it's this you know to assess for that is is discriminatory. So they've already moved beyond what they published what six months ago. I don't know what they consider criteria for um, you know the capacity to consent. They're saying you know people with intellectual disabilities have the capacity to consent, right? People, severely autistic, nonverbal people have the capacity to consent. Uh, children have the capacity to consent. Um, you know, Aaron Saf said, never say a schizophrenic person can't also be trans. Like who, on what basis does someone not have the capacity to consent? Yeah. I didn't read the mental health chapter of SOC 8 very thoroughly. I kind of want to now, because I wonder if it may have been a bit more liberal let's say than i had initially yeah it's you know i think it's based on the principle of like comparing it to to being gay that right that that if you're gay then why can't you be gay and have schizophrenia or gay and you know have cognitive disabilities and and so because that's how they're thinking about it and framing it they're looking for any excuse possible why can't you be trans and have schizophrenia so they're they're so in their mind, they don't want to see any of those things as a barrier, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it really calls into question, what is the capacity to consent then? And, you know, if capacity to consent implies that we know what we're consenting to, and given the lack of evidence, there, there's yeah. no informed consent. You have to be informed. We, and we don't, we don't have that that data right to be able to make an informed decision yeah it calls into question both uh, the, the both two sentences in that or bleh, both two words in that in that phrase yeah informed and consent neither of those two uh can yeah are existing here and especially since what we're arguing isn't you know the, the the capacity to consent assessment isn't about their identity i mean people don't need my permission to identify with whatever they want but the capacity to consent is about these irreversible medical interventions. But they're just pretending otherwise. They're pretending it's about the identity. Yeah. As if you can't be trans-identified unless you have these medical interventions. Well, I don't think they see it as an identity. Like you're saying, I mean, they, they see it like sexual orientation, right? Something you're you're born with or just some sort of inherent um, innate thing. They, they, how they see it changes depending on the context, right? So it's like it's an identity sometimes, or it's this, it's an inherent, unchangeable thing, or it's, you know, um, expansive and varying throughout the course of your life. Um, yeah. It, but the identity yeah. can be separate, right? Like, remember um, Sean Giamatti, who is a trans man, right? Who said that he identifies as a gay man. And is married to a woman who identifies as a lesbian. And and you pointed out your confusion at that. I I, I mentioned how 
heteronormative it is to think that words have meaning. It, it stuck in my mind the next day I texted you. Like, I just, I'm still <laughs> thinking about this. How are you yeah. a gay man married to a lesbian? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because literally those words don't mean what you, what you think they mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, but 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 I I brought that up because it's um you know there's identity, so he identifies as a gay man, but is also a trans man who's right. It, th there's a separation. It, they do what they do in order to serve what they're saying. You're right. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. sometimes it's an identity. Sometimes it's an eight. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's you know, who knows what. Right. Mm -hmm. It's whatever it has to yeah. be. Or a web that keeps getting woven until you're, you know, for the rest of your life. That's right. We've got 15 minutes left. Should we power through? Let's go. Um, the type of surgery that somebody's having uh, should be weighed in terms of uh, the impact that mental health uh, can have on the person um, and follow us to being, you know, probably an example of the most involved surgery that people might need um, more mental uh, resources to get through. Um, psychosocial support for surgery should be built. That would be something that came through between parents care seven, seven and eight. Um, uh, mental health providers should um, address uh, tobacco and nicotine use and the reason we put this in there um, is that that is, you know, can block the patient from being able to access surgery because uh, people have worse healing for oxygenation tissues. And so surgeons often um, will test for nicotine metabolites. Um, and, um, uh, and there was a big study where um, in cisgender people getting plastic surgery, that where 10% of uh, people who had said they were ex smokers actually had nicotine metabolites in the system the night before surgery. So um, it's a quite addictive thing, and just the idea of addressing this early on if you're working with the clients of the get there. Um, so then, very importantly, um, maintaining hormones for inpatients. Um, so this idea that um, uh, that the baseline is people off hormones, um, but that's not true. But if somebody is en entering uh, a inpatient setting, um, uh, whether medical or psychiatric, and on hormones, um, the default should be to continue them on hormones unless there's a very specific contraindication like somebody's being admitted for a DVT, for example. Um, uh, respecting gender and inpatient in residential settings, um, and you know, maybe that we can, at this point, we shouldn't need to say this, but, um, uh, but even in fairly progressive places, uh, people get misgendered and uh, allowed to access um, whether it's uh, sleeping situations or restrooms or you know uh, when they're when they're 
trying to heal from whatever the whether it's mental illness or medical illness, um, they, you, you don't need that extra stress as well as interrupter with rapport with the caregivers. Um, and you know we know that, that uh, they're dangerous so for not recognizing the patient caregiver. Um, social support is, you know, the non-professionals should part of therapy be working with patients and building a support network. Um, and um, uh, people, though, should not be required of psychotherapy uh, before accessing psychotherapy care. Um, there's only a requirement for an assessment and that could be done by a care provider or a health provider. There's no psychotherapy uh, requirement uh, access care. I mean, there are people who don't like psychotherapy or benefit from that. Um, and then um, we repeated our statement from Secretary Southern um, in opposition to the University of um, So I think um, those are just the cases again. Um, we are just about out of time, but we maybe uh, take a question there too. Uh, yes. So I work at a tribal hospital, and um, this is making me think when I'm on call, if I have a patient who is taking a clinical therapy, that that should be part of the criteria I use when I'm calling hospitals for beds that I can that I can be asking if they because most of the hospitals. That, I referred to are in Arizona, the psychiatric disability. So should that be one of the questions I'm asking? So are you on, on the phone and communicating with that person? So I would, I think I would say, you know, when, when you're talking about medications, they're on, you know, that they're on, you know, listing the hormones or, um, or other medicines that they're on and saying that that is, you know, part of the treatment yeah. plan and just make yeah. sure that that's not going to be disrupted. Yeah, and then if they won't take my word for it, I'll get the ER doc to also do that. Yeah. And then maybe send, do I send over the guidelines to and say, FYI, you say, yeah, this? we need them to take that bed. Um, and they're saying they're going to stop the person's hormones and you can't find another place for them. And <laughs> I certainly would send a copy of the guidelines uh, to reinforce your um, your position because unfortunately the people who most need to you know read the standards of care are the people who never read the standards of care. <laughs> okay, um, I think we'll finish and um, the last um, session I think is back in the big room. <laughs> The, the people who most need to read the standards of care are the people who are least likely to read it. I grew up hearing the exact same thing about the Bible. Would you believe it? <laughs> so he forgot to include the the part about, you know, the new the new part about the eunuch identity. Wonder why. Well, he was only covering the, the mental health uh, uh, chapter, right? Okay. Uh, but I do wonder, uh, yeah, uh, what if, you know, because no psychosocial, he's saying no, no um, psychological assessment is needed for, uh, you know, to, to transition. Um, and now eunuch identity is something that you can just transition into. So no psychological assessment needed for uh, elective uh, orchiectomy.
Come on, Aaron. Yeah, no, no discrimination. I mean, people with severe autism can still have castration fetishes. I mean, don't be a bigot. <laughs> but you notice the word, the wording that he used. He said, "So, um, so you paraphrase saying you don't need psychotherapy prior to tra- medical transition." But the word he actually used was, "You don't need psychotherapy prior prior to receiving care." Right. Which, makes it, which makes it sound so much worse, right? As if psychotherapy isn't care. Yep. Right. I think what's what's worse is that is that care is euphemism for transition in this context, right? Care means medical transition. Um, yeah. I I was also wondering this when he says you don't need psychotherapy. It does seem that even if you're truly trans whatever that means and you go through this it just seems like psychosocial support from a therapist would be so essential to figure out who you are going to be in this world and um i was you know they completely dismissed that like no all we have to do is change your body and you're good to go and mm-hmm. that in, in, uh, next Next week, we're going to do the uh, APA's guidelines, and they basically are very clear about that. It's like that a, psycho- a psychologist's job is not – basically, your your trans identity has nothing to do with why you would see a psychologist is kind of how, how they're, they're framing it. So that's – that yeah, that seems to be the position is that, you know, you're, you're trans just like you're gay, and like you don't need psych- psychotherapy about that. You know, you just – you know, you'll need it for something else. And the psychologists just need to be equipped to uh, work with a patient of this demographic is essentially how, how it's now conceived of. So if it's not about identity. Is it about gender dysphoria? And if it's about gender dysphoria, then why is no assessment needed? Like is gender dysphoria yeah. not well, a Gender dysphoria is something that happens to people who have minority stresses due to their trans identity in a cis-normative world. So gender dysphoria is just a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a basically the, the, how they understand it or how they frame it is gender dysphoria is something that develops due to minority stress of being a trans person. The transness precedes the gender dysphoria, which is created due to cis-normative discrimination. But what about what about the desire to you know um, get rid of one's breasts, right? Or like the there there is some even in their framework, there there's some recognition of distress in the body. They'll 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 they kind of that's what I kind of again like talking we're kind of jumping into the APA uh, what they covered there, but it's almost like they seem to just stop their brain from going there from thinking about that, and they just call it embodiment goals. And it's just like it's they don't think about you know what they they don't allow themselves to actually think about the distress that would lead somebody to want to alter their body that in, that drastically. It's just about. It's just, it's an embodiment goal, like getting a piercing, you know, it's very, um, they, 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 they have to minimize it is, is, is how it works. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being here with us. Thank you. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.